Well, I want you to use your gift of imagination with me this morning. Roll back in history about 2,000 years ago and imagine that you live in the city of Ephesus. And you are a new Christian. A guy by the name of Paul that they call an apostle came to Ephesus and he talked about the Lord Jesus, and you listened and you heard. You decided to trust Him as your Savior, and you begin to become a follower of Jesus, and you attend what would have been called a house church. In other words, your church meets in a house. All of the Christians in the city of Ephesus meet in little houses because they couldn't build a building like this if they wanted to because they wouldn't be allowed to do that. But there's a tremendous challenge that you have in being a follower of Jesus in Ephesus because when you look around Ephesus, There are 50 temples in Ephesus, and everywhere you go, you see one of these temples to a false god. Everybody you just about that you know worships one of these gods. In fact, in Ephesus, there is this huge temple called the Temple to Artemis, and it's like a lot of lustful worship going on there, and it's sort of a nasty place, etc. But just about everybody in Ephesus worships that false god. And then if you're considered loyal to the Roman government, you also worship at a temple that has been built there for emperor worship to worship Caesar. And so every day you deal with this. And then when you go to eat lunch or to buy food for your dinner, you know that the meat that you buy in the marketplace has been offered as a sacrifice to one of these false gods. And so all of this pagan worship just surrounds you. And it gets discouraging some days. And when people find out that you're a Christian... You're a follower of this guy called Jesus. You get ostracized, whether it's your family members or whether it's your friends. They think you're weird, maybe even a little on the creepy side because you follow this, you're part of this new sect or cult, they call it, called being a Christian or a follower of this guy named Jesus. And all that they know about him is that he was crucified and something about him rising from the dead, which sounds totally ridiculous. You go to your house church one night and you sit down and everybody is excited. And one of the leaders says, we have gotten a letter from Paul. Paul, the apostle who started the house churches here in Ephesus, has written us a letter. And it was sort of like an ancient blog. And this letter that Paul the Apostle has sent to us is like a survival guide for how we can live and get through the day and get through the week successfully. And as they begin to read this letter to these churches, to you there in Ephesus, the letter of which we know is the book of Ephesians, you begin to hear that in spite of 50 temples in Ephesus, in spite of everything that's going on in Ephesus with all these false gods, God is doing something himself. God is building something. In fact, he says he's building a temple. But it's not a temple like the temples that you see of brick and mortar. It is a different type of temple. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. As I said, Ephesians is a survival guide for believers who were living in extremely difficult circumstances. In addition to the circumstances that they were facing, most of the believers in Ephesus were Gentiles. Gentiles in those days were all non-Jews. Now, there was a lot of hostility between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. Let me give you an idea of the kind of intensity of hostility that you had. 
If you watched any of the news over the last two weeks, you have noticed that Hamas in the Gaza Strip area has been lobbing rockets into Israel, and Israel returned the favor by sending its air force in to drop bombs all over their cities, and so there's been death and destruction going on, and they finally got a ceasefire this week. That is a picture of the kind of hostility that existed in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. They just didn't have rockets and an air force back in those days. Had they had it, they probably would have utilized it. And so... These Christians, these new believers living in Ephesus are Gentiles, but the church believers up to this point have primarily been Jews. Now, if you can imagine a church over in the Gaza Strip this morning that's trying to put people from Hamas in the same room as Israelis, that would have given you a picture of what it would have been like in Ephesus when you've got Gentiles walking in the door on Sunday morning into the house church, and they got to sit down next to a Jew. And they're like, I don't know that I want to be sitting next to this person. And the Jew, Jewish Christians sit there saying, I don't need to be sitting next to you. And we really don't want to have anything to do with each other. And what Paul is saying here when we go into the second chapter is God is building something new. And what God is building is diverse. And God's taking the Jews and the Gentiles and he's saving both and placing them both in the same church, in the same fellowship, in the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to begin with verse 11. Therefore remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, now as a Jew, he's writing as a Jew because he's a Jewish Christian himself, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, and that basically that's code language for you guys were just considered by us Jews to be a bunch of filthy, no-good-for-nothing folks by those of us who were pure and clean which was made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, and notice how he's going to describe them, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And Israel was the idea of all those who were connected to the Lord. So you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that is a pretty tough description that he's giving to these Gentile believers as to where they used to be. But every once in a while, you got passages of Scripture that you got a but. Makes all the difference in the world what comes after it. But now, in Christ Jesus, remember we said one of Paul's favorite words, phrases, is in Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul's saying when you go to your church and you sit down and you look at those Jews across the way and they look at you and you realize that you're both in Christ, you're in Christ because Jesus is your peace. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. What? Notice the unity here. One new man. In place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, how? Through the cross, 
thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God says, I'm building something. In verses 19 through 22, he tells us what and how he is building. And my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin. Follow along if you would. And on the flip side is the series of messages we're going to be moving through this summer from the book of Ephesians. So you'll be ready to roll when you get here on Sunday mornings. All right. Let's see what he says. How is God building this? He uses a household metaphor, and then he's going to move to a building metaphor. First of all, he looks at these Gentile folks, and he says, You are fellow citizens, verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints. He says, You also, you Gentiles along with the Jews, you are now all fellow citizens with the saints. Now, who are these saints he's talking about? They are the Old Testament saints, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Abraham, etc. You are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, get the idea of the diversity. Paul is saying that all of these heroes of Judaism, the saints, the leaders of Judaism... You are now in the same country, the same nation with them. You are fellow citizens with them, which means that you share all the privileges that they do. Now, how in the world could he say that? How could some dirty, filthy, pagan Gentile who had come to know Jesus as his Savior now be considered a fellow citizen and on same level as a Jewish hero like Moses or Abraham. But let's, let's bring it down to where we live. How in the world can you and I walk in here on Sunday morning and sit in the pew and have the same access to God as someone like Billy Graham had? And how can you walk in here on Sunday morning and hope to worship and have the same access to God and the same seating and standing before the Lord to communicate with Him and have a relationship with Him as some other person sitting in here who's been walking with the Lord for decades. I had two funerals in the last week of ladies in this congregation who walked with Jesus for literally 50, 60, 70 plus years. And we talked about how committed they were to Christ and all that they did and how they walked so much with Jesus. But how could you walk in and hope to have the same kind of relationship with Jesus and access to Jesus as they did? Sometimes I'm with people and they'll say, Pastor, would you pray? Because they don't feel like they're worthy to pray. Anybody felt like that? You're sitting there. I mean, every time I go to a family reunion, I know who's going to get called on to pray. Because somehow or another, I got supposedly aligned to God that nobody else has because I'm a preacher. And I got reverend in front of my name or I've been ordained, etc. But that's not the case at all. The reason Paul could say, look at those Gentiles and say, you are 
a fellow citizen with the saints is because of what he said earlier. You have been brought near how? Not by your ethnicity, not by your background, not by your money, not by your education, not by how religious you have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. You see, Jesus has brought us all in. Jesus has brought us all together. Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection is the one who leveled the playing field and created access to the Father God. So that's how we come in. And now every time he says you, it's plural. All the you's are plural. God's doing his work, all of us together. Not individuals. He's working in all of us together. How's God building? He says he's building us on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Verse 20. Foundation is the the bottom of the building. It's on the place where everything else rests. Now, who are these apostles and prophets? These are the apostles of the New Testament era like Paul, Peter, James, etc. And the prophets are those who had the prophetic office in the early church. And their job was to proclaim the message of truth. Both the apostles as leaders taught as well as the prophets in the church taught. And the core of what they taught, this foundation that they taught, is what we have as the New Testament. And so he says that your faith is built, the foundation of our faith is the teachings of what you and I have in the New Testament. Matthew through the book of Revelation. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, now notice what he says next, Christ Jesus, verse 20 himself, is the cornerstone. Now, in the ancient world, the cornerstones were extremely significant. In our culture today, when you build a building, you stick a cornerstone in the side of the building. If you go outside this building, there's one right there that tells you the history of when this church was started, when this church built this building, and it's, it's pretty, and you, will, and you can look at it as you go by, but we don't really pay that much attention to cornerstones. In the ancient world, cornerstones were big-time important. Let me explain to you how cornerstones function. First of all, the cornerstone assured the stability of the foundation. In other words, the foundation was dependent upon the strength and the vitality of the cornerstone. If you had a weak, inadequate cornerstone, you were going to have a weak, inadequate building that could likely collapse. If you had a strong, powerful cornerstone, that cornerstone literally anchored the whole building. Secondly, the cornerstone determined the character of the building. To give you an example, the temple in Jerusalem had a cornerstone that was 29 feet in length. It was the size of what we would know today as a railroad boxcar. Can you imagine a stone that big? But that was what the temple was anchored on in Jerusalem. Again, that idea of the importance of the cornerstone. Not only was the cornerstone essential to the foundation and the stability of the building, but the cornerstone also determined the architectural unity and symmetry of the building. In other words, when they put the cornerstone in, the rest of the building, in terms of its symmetry, centered around the cornerstone, and the unity of the building in terms of its architectural excellence, etc., was based on the cornerstone. The lay of the walls, the dimensions of the structure were all dependent on the cornerstone. And every other stone in the building was built to specifications predicated on the cornerstone. In other words, when they went to build the rest of the facility, they would build off of the size, the scope, the architecture of that cornerstone. In other words, the cornerstone determined everything about the building. So notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying that what God is building... 
in building his church, what God is doing is he says the cornerstone is Jesus, period. He is saying that everything rests on Jesus. It all builds off of Jesus. Everything that is built into the church is supposed to be cut and shaped so that it fits with his vision, his mission, and is under his lordship. Everything conforms to Jesus. The character of the church, the leadership of the church, the organization of the church, everything is based upon and has to format itself after the lordship of Jesus Christ. That means, folks, that when God builds his church, I'm not talking about when we attempt to do it, but when God builds his church, he does not build around personalities. He builds around one personality, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't build around programs, though they have their place. He builds around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you build around a program or build around a personality, when the program or the personality either leave or burn out, the church is in big-time trouble. If you build around the person of Jesus Christ, you will continue no matter what because Jesus continues no matter what. And so he says, everything cues off of the Lord Jesus Christ. The specifications of the architect's work built off of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, when God builds, he loves to build and always will build with diversity. They're sitting in these little house churches. Now get the feel. It's, It's tough enough that you're sitting in the room and you're a Gentile and you got a Jewish believer over here and they're looking over at you thinking, why in the world are you here? And they're looking over at you thinking, why are you here? Give me a little example of one time I lived through this. Years ago, I was on a mission trip in Venezuela. And Venezuelans and Colombians have no use for each other. And I didn't realize that. And we were sitting there in a Bible study one night and with a bunch of Venezuelans and some Colombians came in. Now, I don't understand Spanish. But I noticed some talking began, but I didn't pay any attention to it. And then I noticed our host missionary began to speak rather strongly. And afterwards, he said that some of the folks began to sort of trash talk the Colombians. And he had to step in and say, hey, this is the body of Christ, and we don't do that, and everybody is equal here, etc. Well, folks, that's what's going on. you got these Jews and Gentiles in the same house church, and get the idea. They're not in a room this big. They're in a room maybe the size of this platform, excluding the choir loft. So you're sort of jammed in there. You know, it's tough enough when you got to be with somebody that you're sort of suspicious of and don't like or don't want to be with. But then when you got to sit next to them, you know, it's, it's really tough. And that's where they are sitting in there. And Paul is saying, God's building something here. God's doing a work here. And they're sitting there thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be accepted because I'm a Gentile. And Paul is saying, yeah, you're going to be accepted because you've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. And the Jewish believers are sitting there and they're saying, I don't think I want to bring this, this you know, Gentile believer in here because they're a Gentile. And Paul said, uh-uh, they came in the same way you came in. So we're all in here together, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we tend to look at that and we say, isn't that nice, isn't that wonderful, et cetera. But I want you to think right now now about people walking in the doors of our church who are different from us. Skin color is different from us. Backgrounds different from us. Socioeconomics are different from us. They look different. They sound different. They smell different. They are different. Think about the 
person or persons who could walk in here who were the most different from you that you'd have the most difficulty with. And he's saying if they're followers of Jesus and you're followers of Jesus, we share Jesus in common, and that is the important thing. And that's what brings us together. And when God builds his church, he always builds it with diversity. Now, what is God building? Verse 21, he says he is building a holy temple. He is not building by that a building. Okay, I cannot stress that enough. He is not talking about a building here. The temple in ancient Israel that he's using as a metaphor here was used for three purposes. It spoke of the presence of God. It was built for the worship of God. And it was built as a place to serve God. Now notice how he says in verse 21 that he's building this temple. He says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Growing building. He's adding to his church all the time. He says the whole structure is being joined together. Now, the idea that the Greek language there means to precisely cut something so that it fits strongly, smugly, and beautifully into its place. So he's saying that God is, 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 is putting it all together, but he has to cut it and he has to shape it so it fits well together. Imagine a stone going into a building and, and they're having to take it, the masons have to take it and just shape it, cut it, shape it different ways so it fits well in there together. Now imagine if that stone could speak, what would the stone say? Oh, that hurt. I don't appreciate what you just did to me. I, I want to be part of this, but I don't want to have to get... You know, sort of banged on and banged up and cut over here and cut over there and smoothed out over here so that I, so that I fit in well with the structure. And you see, when God goes to fit us into the church, what does he do? He has to work on us and shape us so that we fit in. He has to cut off the selfishness so that we fit in. He has to get the eyes out so that we think of the group as a whole. And most of the time, what do we do with God? When God shapes us, we complain and we fuss and we don't enjoy it and we don't like it and we bellyache about it. But God is saying, I'm shaping you to go in. So the next time God starts shaping us, what we need to do instead of fussing is saying, thank you, Jesus. Because the fact that you're shaping me means that you're putting me in to your temple. You're placing me in there so I can be in your presence, so that I can worship you, and so that I can know, and so that I can be part, God, of what you were doing. Now, I said earlier, the purpose of the ancient temple was threefold. Number one, to be indwelt by God. We're going to deal with that a little bit later in a moment. Second, it was for worship. What God is building in his church, what he is putting us together and building us for, is to worship him. And then it was for to serve him. Notice what he says next, verse 21. He says, it's into a place of dwelling for God by the Spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, folks, the whole reason God's putting you together, bringing you together and shaping you to be together is because God wants to dwell in you. The temple in ancient Israel was where they looked for the presence of God to be. 
And what he's saying is that God is putting us together so that he can dwell in us and dwell among us. When we get together as the body of Christ, we don't have to ask God to come. He's already here. We don't drag the Lord in here or try to sweet talk him whenever we get together as the body of Christ because he's already here. And that's why the focus of any time we get together ultimately has to be, needs to be, should be Jesus. Folks, the most important person in the room this morning is not me as the pastor. It's Jesus. It's not the worship leader. It's Jesus. It's not the praise band. It's Jesus. It's not us. It's him. We don't have to talk him into being here. He was here before we ever got here this morning. He was waiting for us because he's so excited to see his bride coming in to be with him on Sunday morning. Now, is he with us the rest of the week? Yes. But when you read through the New Testament, what you will see is that there is a special work of God that is done when the body of Christ is together that's not done any other time. In the book of Acts, every outpouring of the Holy Spirit takes place when the body of Christ is together. When God moves, he moves powerfully through the body of Christ. And we've had all this emphasis about, well, I can go out and do it without the church, without the body of Christ. No, you can't. And the reason you can't is because God decided that you couldn't do it without the body of Christ. And we say, well, the church is full of people who are hypocrites and screwed up and messed up and they're wild this and tore up about this and I can't stand them. Have you looked in the mirror recently? That's all of us. (laughs) We all screwed up. As a good deacon of mine used to say, all God's kids have got issues. We all got our issues and our mess ups. That's why he's bumping us and scraping us and chasing us and the whole bit, putting us together. He does that so he can fill us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's how we relate to each other. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you'll hold that verse up there on the screen, not neglecting to meet together. He says, I want you to be together. Don't neglect being together, as is the habit of some. But when you get together, do what? Encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approached drawing near. That is the day. What is the day? The day is the second coming of Jesus. You see, when we get together and we encourage one another and we stir one another up, ultimately what we're doing is getting ready for the day that Jesus comes again. He is working in us when we get together to get us ready for him to be coming again. How does he do all of this? He says, you're a place of dwelling for God. How? By the Spirit. The Spirit of God is at work within us. He's the one who's gluing us together. He empowers us. He gifts us. We talked about the gifts of the Spirit on Wednesday nights this past year. He teaches us. He teaches us the Word of God. If you say, I don't understand the Bible, ask the Spirit of God to start teaching you the Word of God because that's one of the Spirit's responsibilities and roles is to teach us the Word of God. He produces Christ-like character in us, known as the fruits of the Spirit from the book of Galatians. You see, the Holy Spirit is not just floating around in the building. 
When I was a kid growing up, we used to, I, we'd go every, I'd go to church every Sunday, we used to talk about the Holy Ghost. And all I knew was I didn't want to bump into the Holy Ghost. Because I thought he was going to haunt me. And I thought when they shut the church down at nighttime and closed the doors, the Holy Ghost came out. And he floated like some vapor all around in the sanctuary, you know. And I made sure I was out of that building. I wasn't the last person out of the building because I didn't want the Holy Ghost to get a hold of me floating around in the building and so forth. And sometimes that's the way we tend to look at the Holy Spirit. He's just floating around there like some kind of vapor. No, the Holy Spirit is at work big time. He's teaching. He's equipping. He's producing Christ-like character. He is empowering us. He's making everything that he talks about here in Ephesians happen. That is his role. That is his calling. Think of the Holy Spirit this way as a foreman on a job. Pastored a guy years ago who was a, a foreman. He used to call out how much concrete had to be poured on a particular construction project. He had to organize everybody that was on that project. He made sure that the architect's designs were being implemented. He oversaw the whole project. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's calling out the Father God's directions. He's in power and he's calling out what needs to happen. It's like the person in your family who puts the annual family reunion together. Okay? They make sure the fried chicken and all that other stuff is going to show up. And I better not put down too many menu items. Y'all can't wait to get out of here and go get your sinky teeth into it. But that's the person who puts it's the family reunion together. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's walking around, working, trying to bring us together, prepare us for the day. Get the bride of Christ ready for the day when Jesus is going to come again. So God is doing what? He's building his church. He's building us together. He's building us by the work of the Holy Spirit. He is building us with diversity. But how do we join him? And what he's doing. Let me give you some ideas of some stuff that's going to be happening around here where you and I can join him. First of all, this coming Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, we're going to try something new called Wonderful Wednesday. At 6 o'clock, we're going to have a church-wide dinner. $2 is all you have to pay for your food. And I'll make an agreement with you. If you can't afford the $2, I'll, I'll spring for you this time, all right? We're going to get together at 6 and just enjoy fellowship together. 6.45, we're going to celebrate us as family. We're going to recognize birthdays and anniversaries. Now, I do have a gift for you if you've had a birthday or anniversary recently. And we're going to sing to you. It's a privilege to hear me sing to you. I'm going to provide barf bags when I get finished. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to have just a great time together as a church family. Then at 7 o'clock, my wife's going to take the children. Jacob's going to have the teenagers. I'll have the adults. And and we're going to spend some more time praying and studying God's Word together. But join us Wednesday night at 6 o'clock for a wonderful Wednesday. Second, Sunday, June the 7th. Sunday, June the 7th. In addition to a lot of things we're going to do that day, is going to be Baptism Sunday. I've already got one young guy that's lined up to be baptized. And if you're here or you're listening through any of our social media outlets, radio, and you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you haven't been baptized, please get in touch with me ASAP. Because we would love to take you through the experience of believer's baptism that day. Baptism is, is God's way that he gave to us of saying, I have decided to publicly proclaim that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to serve him and follow him and walk with him. And that is going to be Sunday, June the 7th. And so 
get in touch with me if you desire to be baptized that day. The 6th, okay, all right. Sunday, June the 6th. I'm so excited I punched up another day. Sunday, June the 6th. The folks back there were giving me signals. I thought they told me I'd run out of time or something. Sunday, June the 6th. And then, as I mentioned earlier, summer Bible adventure is June the 21st through the 28th. And we're looking forward to having a great week, children kindergarten through the fifth grade. We got all kinds, you look in your connection there, we got all kinds of things that are signed up for that week uh, that you can participate in, the kids can participate in, and it is a great way of us coming together to share Christ. I've already talked about shrimp, and be praying about that. The applications are right over here, but those are some of the ways that we can be part of what God is building. Finally, how do you get in on the building project to begin with? You make a simple, basic decision. I want and I choose to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and as my Savior. I am going with God's help to follow Him for the rest of my life. Jesus walked up to people and He would just say, follow me. They got to know Him and they would come that day, Jesus would say, follow me. And for all of us, that day comes when Jesus says, are you willing to follow me? And we have to make a decision. Am I going to choose this day to follow Jesus Christ? Not to become perfect. He takes care of getting us cleaned up. We don't do that ourselves. But I choose this day to follow Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to have a word of prayer. And then we're going to experience a time of what we call an invitation. It's a time for you to contemplate making whatever decision you need to be where God wants you to be in your life right now. And if you need to be at that place today of trusting Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, then I want to invite you to walk the aisle of this church, meet me down front here. I would love to pray with you about making that decision. If you sense and feel that God is speaking to you and saying, I want you to be part of this church fellowship, this local expression of the body of Christ here, and to be part of this church, then I invite you to come. I'd love to pray with you about that and introduce you to our church family. If you need to rededicate your life or get back and walking with the Lord again, I invite you. If you need to surrender your life to something that God is speaking to you about and saying, hey, I need you to surrender to this, I, I want to invite you to come. I know what it's like to sit out there and grab hold of a pew and struggle with God about making a decision, but also know the relief and the joy of saying yes to whatever Jesus is calling you to. And so I invite you to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Lord, as we come to you, we just want to bring ourselves to you this morning. And Jesus, we want to get in on what you were doing, what you were building, Lord, just like you were working in Ephesus so long ago. And there seemed at times to be no evidence of it. But, Lord, you were building your church, building that group of people who loved you, followed you, were on mission for you. Even so, Lord, you are doing that among us this day. And we bless and praise you for it. And now, Lord, we need to move to you in making whatever decision we need to make, Lord, to follow you in obedience. So, Lord, we commit these moments of invitation and decision and contemplation to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Come if you will.